You are listening to Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 17. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. This podcast features writings by Idaho authors Gwyneth Bledsoe, Ray Ellis, Steve Lyles, and Lenore Mobley. Steve will begin with Ray Ellis' latest release, a futuristic science fiction novel called Kraken. Kraken, Chapter One. The village square was busy. Moist streets and the smell of sweat and dirt mixed with the aroma of raw sewage hung heavy in the air. Dirty-faced children played in the streets, and escaped animals ran underfoot. Skip Lang had come to find the needed components to finish the project he was working on. Skip stopped, pretending this time to study a set of sonic amplifiers. He looked back the way he had come. The lone figure stopped as well. Now he was sure he was being followed. He rubbed his chin. He wasn't sure by whom or why, but he was sure, whoever it was or for whatever reason, it was not good. Tossing his raven-colored braid over his shoulder, Skip used the occasion to scan the area more thoroughly. Nothing. Where are you guys? He grimaced and spoke into his wrist communicator. Jonas! Jay! Anybody! He let his gaze travel over the sea of faces, studying them. He looked at the walls again. He swore. Signal must be blocked. His gaze shifted upward, tracing the canyon-like walls of the buildings in the inner city. Since being let go by the company, Skip had made his home in the underground, the subterranean world, which had evolved in the abandoned subway systems that ran for over 4,700 kilometers in length and more than two and a half kilometers beneath the city streets. After years of no contact, Jonas had left a video message calling in an old debt, urging Skip to meet him that afternoon in the city. Now he was wondering if coming had been the best decision. He called again, still no answer. Closing the connection, Skip glanced over his shoulder again and then burst into flight, hoping to draw his pursuers out into the open. As he did, he realized his plan had worked, if only too well. Lowering his head, he simply ran. Rounding a corner, he came to a skidding stop. He had run into a dead-end alley. Skip turned. Too late, behind him, blocking the mouth of the alley, stood four very large men and one smaller figure whom Skip took to be their leader. With slow, purposed steps, the men made their approach. Jonas! Skip called frantically into his wrist comm. Jonas, now would be a good time to show up. Despite the cool breeze and damp weather, beads of sweat rolled down Skip's aquiline face. The group was near enough now that Skip could see their faces. The five figures continued to close the distance between themselves and Skip, 
fanning out in a half circle as they advanced. Suddenly, one of them pulled a handheld energy weapon from his pocket. An IMRS-457 agitator. The weapon banned from legal sale had long been outlawed, even for military use. The energy beam did more than just kill its victim, but was designed to torment as well. The beam attacked the central nervous system, disrupting the brain's electrical activity, increasing the body's core temperature. This would cause the brain to swell simultaneously, triggering violent muscle spasms. Finally, due to increasing pressure and contractions, the victim's heart and other vital organs would simply implode. As the men leveled the weapon on Skip, he smiled, exposing broken, yellowed, and missing teeth. After all I heard about you, I thought you'd be smarter than this, he gestured with the weapon indicating the alley, to allow yourself to be trapped in a blind alley. Too bad, though, he began to laugh. You don't get to learn from your little mistake. Skip could see the man's dirt-encrusted finger tightening on the trigger. Wait! It was all he could think to say. What, you want a bag first? Not that it'll do you any good. The man continued laughing. Hey, boys, he wants to beg for his life. Shall we let him beg or shall we just kill him? Oh, let him beg first. Who knows? He might even make me laugh, too, the second of the large men said. Then turning a fiery gaze on Skip, he said, I'm not as easily as amused as my friend is, though. Skip's words came quickly. You don't have to do this. How much are you getting paid for this? I'll double it. His hazel blue eyes dancing all over the alley, looking for something, anything, that might be used in his defense. You have me at a disadvantage, he managed a nervous smile. At least, tell me who you're working for. Man should at least know why he's being killed. A third man spoke. Our client just wants him dead. Didn't say nothing about keeping him pretty. I say we have some fun first. Wait, fellas, Skip said, lowering his hands. The third man grabbed Skip by his collar and threw him against the wall. Skip slid to the ground, the sight of his face landing in a thin puddle of rancid water. With his hands beneath him, Skip worked frantically to remove his wrist communicator. Just as he pulled it from his wrist, he was kicked hard in his side. Along with a burst of air forced from his lungs, he felt several ribs crack. As he lay there fighting for breath, Skip could see his attackers. The smallest of the group stood back. Skip assumed he was the lookout, though why would they need one? He couldn't figure out. No one would interrupt them. Trying to force himself up, his breathing became labored. Each intake brought with it a stab of searing, white-hot pain. Come on, get up, pretty boy. You're not done yet, the man said as he jerked Skip from the ground and held him level with his face. Skip's feet dangled several inches above the ground. Look at me, the man bellowed into Skip's face, flecks of sour spittle spattering him. Skip winced before staring defiantly at the man. Taking a breath, he settled himself, then spat in the man's face. He grimaced. He knew this was going to hurt. Roaring like a mad bear, the men flung Skip all the way across the alley, slamming him off the far wall like a child's plaything. This time, Skip was expecting it. In fact, he hoped it would happen. He was ready. Twisting as he flew, he managed to absorb the impact on his side. Lying on the ground, he finished connecting the new components to the energy cell in his wrist comm. 
staggering to his feet, Skip defied the man. So, you're going to let this brute beat me to death and cheat you out of using your toy? Blood ran from Skip's nose and mouth, his eyes swollen nearly shut, each breath coming rough and ragged. He stepped toward the men, antagonizing them. Go ahead, Skip yelled, then closed his eyes and lunged forward. Shoot me! The man fired. At that precise moment, Skip pressed the activator switch on his wrist comm. There was a bright flash and an accompanying blast, which threw him backwards, slamming him into a row of partially filled trash barrels. He felt the air rushing out of his lungs as his world suddenly began to grow dark. Moments passed. Struggling to his knees, Skip willed himself back from the brink of unconsciousness. Grasping desperately, trying to catch that elusive first breath, he celebrated the fact that he was not dead. Skip looked up to see all five of the would-be assassins struggling to regain their footing. Overcome by the intensity of the optical burst and unprepared for the backblast, the assailants had momentarily lost consciousness. Skip made a mental note of the unexpected bonus and continued his struggle toward the mouth of the alley and freedom. Willing his legs to obey, Skip began in his best imitation of a man running, but looking more like a common drunk after too many last drinks. Slowly, strength returned, and just as he staggered past the last of the fallen men, he felt a hand close around his ankle. He fell hard. With his body not fully recovered, he landed face-first onto the murky pavement, his ribs screaming in protest. Dragging his breath through gritted teeth, Skip turned to see the business end of another weapon, an optical neutralizer pointed directly at his head. Then the barrel swung away. The cloaked figure turned and fired on the four other men, who in their weakened state realized too late that they, and not Skip, were the intended target. The men fell backwards, moaning and screaming, enraged and in pain. Their optical nerves seared. Blindness claimed them. The fifth and considerably smaller of the assailants turned his attention back to Skip. The weapon leveled at him, directing Skip to the back wall of the alley. The assailant stood, blocking any possible chance of escape. As the assailant removed the hooded mask, Skip realized to his amazement that the fifth man was actually a woman, a fact lost to him during the earlier stress. What? A look of unbelief and confusion washed across his youthful face. What are you doing here? Was all he could manage. Looks like I'm saving your rear end, she said smugly. And good thing, too, you were about to run into the rest of this squad. There's mercs all over this square. Skip could see, now that she had taken off the too-big-for-her mercenary's uniform, that although not a pretty girl, she had a strong athletic body and a confidence that gave her a certain attractiveness. Remembering himself and feeling slightly embarrassed at being saved by a female, Skip tried bravado. Well, I had everything under control. I was just about to, yeah, get yourself killed and ruin an entire day's work for me, she said, waving off his comment. I saw these guys tracking you and was just about to make contact when you decided to run into this blind alley. She couldn't help smiling. Skip could feel his cheeks turning red. He looked away, pretending to check the burnt-out wrist communicator. Not that I'm not grateful, but who are you anyway? So I suppose I'm your prisoner now? She laughed. Prisoner? You are full of yourself, aren't you? No, Skip, you're no prisoner of mine. Jonah sent me in here to find you before these guys did. You almost messed that up. 
At that moment, a chirping noise came from her pocket. She answered her communicator with a crisp military tone. Julie here. Who is? Skip had tried to ask, but was stopped by an upraised hand. Copy. Setting position now. ETA? A rope ladder fell along the back wall, causing both Julie and Skip to look up. Above the rim of the building, just over the rooftop, they could see Jay waving and speaking into a communicator. How about right now? said a voice with a Caribbean accent and a widening smile. Behind them, the four men began thrashing wildly, a barrage of profanities flooding the quiet of the alley. Julie stopped to kick aside the discarded weapons, taking the IMRS-457 agitator with her. How did you get past those guys? Skip asked, stepping aside and offering her first up the ladder. No way, pretty boy. Up you go, she said, tucking the weapon in her belt. I didn't go through all this just to watch you get whacked while I'm climbing a ladder. Now store your chauvinistic attitude and climb the rope. Some people call it chivalry, but, you know, I really don't care what you call it. Move your hiney before I carry you up. She was smiling, but something about her stance made Skip believe she was serious. And looking at her, he believed she could. Wow, what a great start to another great Ray Ellis story. Now to switch genres. I'll be reading the second chapter of Gwyneth Bledsoe's second British mystery novel, titled Death at the Races. The main character is newlywed Scotland Yard inspector Rodney Wilson, but this chapter begins with his former partner and good friend, Detective Chief Inspector Jack Lawrence. This chapter is titled The End of the Rainbow. Orderly rows of ancient oaks line the streets of Hampstead Heath in military formation. Their quivering leaves cast dappled shadows on slick tarmac. Flaming red bushes blazed in the theatrical lighting of the magic hour. Streams of sunlight pierced through thunderclouds that threatened to drench the London suburb. And a rainbow arched across the menacing sky, mimicked by the faint outline of its bashful twin bow. Detective Chief Inspector Jack Lawrence turned a corner and glimpsed the rainbow that seemed to end in his garden. The nearer he drove toward home, the further away the taunting bow danced. It slipped across the rooftops into another London suburb, where someone must have needed the pot of gold more than he did. He glanced at the clock on the dashboard and smiled. He was thankful he'd dodged the daily battle with suburban commuters. He'd been able to leave the office earlier than usual. His wife had called to ask if he'd be home in time for dinner. Aromatic memories of Megan's meals lured him into punctuality. But his demanding mistress, Scotland Yard, often vied for his time after hours. Matters of life and death trumped a tasty pot roast. For once, he assured Megan he'd be home early and with a ravenous appetite. His dear friend and crime-solving partner, Rodney Wilson, would soon be sampling his new bride's dishes— But for now, Jack suspected Rodney and Diane were content to graze at the variety of pubs and restaurants in York. Since his promotion to detective inspector, Rodney had worked with a sergeant of his own. Jack often worked alone or with the young sergeant who had replaced Rodney. He missed his former colleague. And for all his instinctive straw grasping, he couldn't put his finger on why or what he missed about the young man. Suffice it to say, they had formed a close bond on the Banks case the previous year. 
They had followed up leads and harness with each other based on a respectful camaraderie and chased down suspects until Rodney had paid in blood to arrest the culprit. Jack thought that perhaps another case like that might not land on his desk any time soon. The thought of an endless string of mundane cut-and-dried cases made him wince in dread of months of boredom. Not that he considered crime a titillating pleasure for a middle-aged man. His fascination with the human element and trail of clues was all the exercise he needed for his little gray cells. That was his only workout these days. Rodney had the edge with a daily routine at the gym, at least before he got hitched. Jack's mustache twitched in amusement. He remembered skipping hours at the gym to be home with his new bride years ago. Jack eased his rover up the driveway and parked. He anticipated a hug and a kiss from the lady of the house, still fresh and young in his eyes. The many years of marriage and two rambunctious boys were unable to erase the beauty of her sweet face. He slipped the key in the lock and whistled a refrain from The Way You Look Tonight. An old Sinatra favorite was the key to unlocking Megan's heart. As soon as he opened the door, she greeted him with her doe eyes and a soft kiss, yielding to his arms. He responded to her warm reception and grabbed her by the waist, twirling her around. My, my, you're full of yourself tonight, Megan said with a squeal of delight. I was just thinking about Rodney and Diane and how love is blind, he said. Oh, I see. So that's how you ignore my wrinkles. Megan poked him in the ribs. Fee, fi, fo, fum. Do I smell the blood of an Englishman or is that my dinner in the oven? Jack pretended to growl like a giant, wrinkled his nose and sniffed the air. It's a dead rat I found in the cellar and made into rat's tail soup, if you want to know. Perfect. I was never keen on live rodents. Jack chuckled. Why don't I hang up my coat and make myself at home? I've a mind to stay the night, you ravishing beauty. Oh, Jack, you big tease. Megan disappeared into the kitchen to dish up the promised soup. Then she waltzed into the dining room to place Jack's steaming bowl on the table by the newspaper she had laid next to his place setting. Meanwhile, Jack slipped into the adjoining living room in his slippers and made a show of surprising his two boys. He brushed his hand through the tasseled hair of his youngest son, Stephen. The boy lay sprawled on the sofa, reading a library book. His older brother, Matthew, was assembling a mechanical device on the floor with focused attention. You boys got anything to say to your father now I'm home from fighting crime? Huh? Stephen said without looking up, still engrossed in the story. Hi, Dad. Mom says I can finish this before bedtime. Matthew screwed his nose up as he struggled to decipher the instruction manual. Talkative, aren't we? Jack said to no one in particular as he returned to the dining room and sat down at the table. He scooped a spoonful of soup into his mouth and flipped over the pages of the newspaper, taking in recent reported events with a casual glance. His gaze rested on a photograph of a sleek horse with a proud bearing, and he stopped browsing long enough to read the article in depth. Look, Megan, here's a feature in the sports pages on the York races. I'll bet Rodney took Diane to the race course. He's mad about horses. I noticed it at Winston Banks' place. Some of the Banks' thoroughbreds may be in competition while he's there. That'd be something if Rodney ran into Winston Banks or his son Jason. Are you still thinking about the Banks case? That was almost a year ago now. What's the fascination with that family anyway? Megan asked. Oh, you had to be there, Meg. They live in a palace, and Winston Banks' art collection is on a par with the Tate Gallery. He served us a meal nothing short of a banquet, like it was a regular occurrence, and that was just lunch. Okay, so I'm an average cook who reminds you of Jack and the Beanstalk. I suppose my cuisine will never live up to such banquets, and I know my choice of pictures for the living room irritates you. Megan pouted. 
You noticed? Jack raised an eyebrow. Seems I heard it once. Megan retreated into the kitchen to do the dishes. Jack switched on the radio and stopped the dial when he tuned into a news report. It was about the York races, and he realized it was no ordinary story. Something about stopping the races for the day. A drama over the horse tipped to be the favorite. Wonder what happened, he thought. I think I smell a rat, and it's not in my soup. Hey, Megan, listen to this. There's been an incident at the York races. The favorite horse failed to show, right in Rodney's backyard. I wonder if he knew about it. Just then, his mobile phone rang in his overcoat pocket. I'll get that, Jack said, and went to retrieve his phone. He flipped the phone open and grunted. Hello, this is Jack. Jack, it's me, Rodney. Rodney? Were your ears burning? I was just talking about you to Megan. I never expected to hear from you, though. What's up? Rodney's voice sounded frantic. You need to get up here. There's been a death at the races, and Diane's missing. What? Slow down. What are you talking about? Someone stabbed a jockey to death. He was going to ride in the next race. I heard something on the radio about an incident at the racetrack. It didn't smell right to me at the time. But what's happened to Diane? Did you lose her in the crowd? Jack's tone sharpened. We were spending the day at the race course having a great time before everything went haywire. We won our first bet and we were waiting for the big race to start when they stopped the show. I went to snoop around and ran into an old friend from the yard. Remember Alan Bates, who transferred up here? They called him Fishbait. Yes, I remember him. Didn't you two go running along the embankment before I'd get into the office? We teamed up and ran the London Marathon a couple of times. Right after I ran into Alan, he got a call from his chief and went to check out the hoopla. Before I knew it, his boss was twisting my arm to get involved. Said it was a case of national importance and the heavyweights from the yard had better get in on the act. What's his name? This police chief. Chief O'Neill, Chief Inspector O'Neill. I see, so where was Diane while this was going on? I'm kicking myself for leaving her alone in a waiting room while O'Neill dragged me off to inspect the crime scene. You see, when I came back, she disappeared, but her handbag was still there. She'd never leave it lying around to take off like that without telling me, so I know something's wrong. I can't even get a hold of her, Jack. Her phone was in her bag. Rodney took a breath. Well, maybe she just got tired of waiting for you and went back to the hotel. Jack tried to sound upbeat. I already checked with the front desk. The clerk said he hadn't seen her. I wouldn't be so alarmed if she saw something, Jack. I know this sounds crazy, but she may have overheard the murderer talking with his accomplice. Rodney sounded panicked. Whoa, hold your horses, Rodney. Don't tell me you already know who done it. We promoted you once. Look, I'm sure Diane's all right, maybe just a little excitable with all the palaver going on. Something important must have come up for her to leave without telling you. She's bound to call you as soon as she gets to a phone. Well, I hate to admit it, Rodney said, but my stomach's tied in knots. I'm supposed to protect her, for goodness sakes. I've already let her down after a few days of marriage. I should never have left her like that at the mercy of strangers. Calm down, Rodney. She's a sensible girl. I'll tell you what, if I leave right away, I'll be there by nine or ten at the latest. Why don't you just go back to the hotel and wait there for Diane? You mean you'll come all the way up here? If this is a national scandal, the super will give me the green light to get some boots on the ground. But if it's just a local bra, I'd lose my stripes for dropping everything to bail out a friend, even if if you are an inspector. Listen, I'll call the super and straighten it out. He'll still be at the yard plowing through reports, knowing him. We'll contact O'Neill and sort out the protocol, if the super isn't already on the case. We'll get the lads working the angles from both ends. Thanks, Chief. I owe you one. Forget about it. Just book me a room somewhere. I'll call you when I'm approaching York. 
Okay, Rodney agreed. It'll give me something to do. To be honest, I'm a nervous wreck. Looks like we'll be on the same case again, Rodney. I can't say I mind. It hasn't been the same without you. What with one dull case after another. Well, I'd better pack my bags if I'm going to make it to York by ten o'clock. With that, they hung up. Jack stepped into the kitchen where Megan glanced up from the dishes. What's wrong, Jack? You look awful. It's Diane, he said. She's vanished into thin air. Rodney's upset. There's been a fatal stabbing, a high-profile case, and Diane may have heard something related to the crime. Rodney's afraid for her safety. I need to leave as soon as I've packed a few things. Can you get my suitcase and a set of clothes? I'll pack some toiletries. Oh, poor Rodney. She said what a terrible shock. On his honeymoon, too. What could have happened to Diane? Give me a minute and I'll throw some things together. Megan wiped her hands on her apron. She swung into action to help her husband prepare for this latest crisis, her questions still hanging in the air. Jack nodded and proceeded to throw together essentials for the trip, not knowing how long he'd be gone. An impenetrable dark cloud hung over his former sergeant. Jack conjured up a vivid image of the rainbow he'd seen on the way home. There'd be no pot of gold for Rodney until he could find his one true treasure, his beloved Diane. All right. Well, that's my my introduction to British noveling. Now I'll um, I'll read a couple of vignettes I wrote. One is called Pancakes. As a kid, I used to spend a lot of playtime with my friend and neighbor, Roger Wilson. His parents took us to an apple orchard owned by Roger's aunt and uncle, Abe and Winnie. That's the first time I remember eating apple crisp, and it was all a mode, too. Ah, heaven. Once I spent the night with Roger, at breakfast, his mom cooked pancakes. I remember I cleaned my plate, then had a second helping. I was still hungry, so his mom finished cooking the remainder of the batter for me. Not yet satiated, I devoured the food that was still on the plates of Roger, his dad, and then his mom. Twenty-four in all. After that, I walked across the street to my house, just in time for breakfast. Then winners. Our kids were born approximately one and a half years apart. When our youngest child was only three, the siblings were having a race on the sidewalk in front of our house. They stayed in a clump, tripping over each other's feet, watching their little legs go as fast as they could be summoned. I called from the porch, who's winning? With great excitement, our youngest responded, we are. If only we could see life as he did. Lenore Mobley has authored several Western books. Today, I'll be reading Chapter 10 from The Twins' Journey Home. Located on the jutting shoulder of a rocky foothill, the old line shack was tucked against the slope to protect against the cold winter winds. The terrain was studded with brush, pine trees, and patches of grass. To the side of the cabin stood a three-sided shed and two tie-up areas. When Emilia saw it, she was reminded of the many stories she'd read about settling the West. That evening, in the old cabin, preparation was made for the late meal. The cattle were content in the large fence pasture, and some of the men were brushing their horses and feeding them grain. The saddles were lined up under the overhang of the shed, 
with the damp saddle blankets placed on top to dry. In the morning, the riders that were still there would ride back to where they were hired. Emilia sat for a while on a stump, watching each take charge of chores. Most of the riders returned early, except for the two regulars. Later, inside the cabin, Kimberly and Emilia offered their help to the cooks, but got turned down as the wagon master cooks had most of the meal ready. So the girls went to the basin to prepare themselves for the supper. Some long day, Kimberly said, as she found a comb to repair the damage her hat had done to her long hair. I never felt tired today, Emilia said, but you have been under the strain of taking care of your father. How is he recovering? Very well. You know, the gunshot wound happened at a close range. I feel it had to be someone familiar with the area who fired the shot. Has there been anyone new at the ranch? Yes, several people. You know, Kim, you remind me of Abigail in the Old Testament. Emilia placed her hand on her friend's arm. Why do you say that? She was such a brave person, I am not sure of my bravery when it comes to my loved ones. Well, as I remember the story, Emilia said, it was Abigail who handled everything a leader and helper for God would do. She moved quickly to save a nation. You remember reading about her in our study. Just then an announcement that supper was ready interrupted their conversation. They smiled and went to join the others. Emilia sat beside Kelly. He smiled and held her hand as she sat down on the picnic bench. To what do I owe the honor of your presence, he asked. I want to thank you for making my day so memorable and beautiful. Sheen leaned over and in front of everyone, kissed him on the cheek. Thank you for coming, he whispered in her ear. When the dishes were cleaned up, they built a bonfire and sat around it looking into the flames. Kelly brought out an old guitar and began to strum a tune. Kimberly hummed along with his music. Sing for us, Nathan said. She nodded and smiled, and at her brother's cue, began the song. I'm riding away, and I'm riding today. Gonna ride till I see wide range again. I don't care where we go. I'll just follow my pony's nose, and we'll ride along till darkness closes in. Just my Mustang and I, any tears we've had will dry as the trail leads us to places that we love. Not much did I pack, just the guitar on my back, but it's all I need as knows the Lord above. And I know somewhere folks are tearing out their hair because they've had too much of that city air. So I'll ride till the blue turns a sunset hue. And in the meantime, I'll just ride. Right away. When she finished, the group clapped for her and asked for more. Okay, she replied, but only if you join in. Everyone knows these songs. They continued singing until most of them became weary and headed off to their sleeping bags. Nathan waited until he was alone with Kelly. Then he told him about the new riders that appeared to be talking to Bill. This boss of theirs seems to think he can use our bounty and strike at a time with insidious sensitivity. Like he has a person or persons working in our midst, Kelly replied, and they may have been the ones who shot my father. Some other things are mysterious about my herd. A lot of calves missing. But until we do the roundup, I won't know for sure. We'll have to be careful what we say. With that, he got up to retire for the night. Nathan remained by the fire, watching the glow of the embers and the last ruddy flames. The night was black, the sky overcast. After a while, the wild yip of a coyote emphasized the loneliness of the wilderness. He thought about the thousands of campfires the hills had witnessed for years on end. The Indian, the padre, the trapper, the explorer, the gold digger, and the cattleman had passed through the wilderness. 
This lonely scene had been epical in the history of the West. As he sat there, he realized he'd never been meant for work in an office. Peace hovered over him. This Cleland family is a grand family, he thought, and I must do my best for them. With that, he rose and went to his sleeping place, where exhaustion and sleep overtook him. Here are a few quotes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A great writer is, so to speak, a second government in his country. And for that reason, no regime has ever loved great writers, only minor ones. That's from The First Circle, 1964. The next three are from Nobel Lecture, 1972. The sole substitute for an experience which we have not ourselves lived through is art and literature. Literature transmits incontrovertible, condensed experience from generation to generation. In this way, literature becomes the living memory of a nation. The last one, world literature is a kind of collective body and a common spirit, a living unity of the heart which reflects the growing spiritual unity of mankind. And our friend Eugene Shea is from Wyoming, not Idaho, but I'm going to sneak in one of his poems. It's called Spring Comes to the Rockies. The road to the mountains is open at last, just a mud hole to avoid here and there. Snow still blocks our crossing the pass. It will, till it comes early summer at least. The winds of spring that buffet the plains and sandblast the juniper and sage are only a breeze through the quakies and ruffle the conifers hardly at all. Grass is greening in the mountain meadows, peppered thick with dandelion gold. Summer's cows, newly arrived on the range, nurse their young at the edge of the road. White aspen groves, a haze of chartreuse, spring buds advancing to summer foliage. Tiny flowers of spring, through forest duff, a fallen sky of stars, strewn violet and gold. Icy streams crash down among the huge boulders, granite worn smooth by eons of freshets, fed by snow melt from the peaks above. Warm spring sun erasing winter snowfields. Too high, too swift, the foaming waters race to fish for the trout their stony bottoms hide. But summer will come. The waters will tame and trout will rise to my flickering fly. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check my website, beckylyles.com, to learn more about today's authors and their books. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.